0: This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we're back to remote, so we probably sound a little better. One last well
1: different I think it was because three of us were in a room using one mic I have to say this too I know with all the hoopla about our new audio equipment I'm once again (laughs) once again not using it tonight because I just didn't have time I don't want to screw around with it at the last minute you know next time because Becky will be writing the script next time so I'll have time to do that instead of focusing on my script can't wait yeah me neither <laughs> um, what for my script or for me to for get yours, my ass out of my
0: i have to figure out what to do
1: well you have to get through tonight first
0: yes that's who knows true. what the next two and weeks-
1: you have some updates i have two you? quick updates yes okay. both could be a lot longer but <laughs> but we have miles to go before we sleep okay tonight so my first is to episode 97 sarah everard Mm. my source for this is the guardian and the washington post i have to admit i started with the guardian and had to look half of the stuff up i was an english major in college and it was a pretty good college not that you know i got in because probably because my dad and grandfather had gone there but it was a good college but we are definitely two nations divided by a language no offense to our uk listeners but reading an article in the guardian is a lot different than watching broad church (laughs) so or something you know so then I went to the Washington Post article where I'd first seen this and I got some other stuff anyway not to trivialize it but in a report commissioned in the UK after Sarah Everard's murder march the watchdog group Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services Jesus it's a mouthful um, I guess says radical change is needed to prevent violence against women and girls. The Guardian newspaper pressed Inspector Zoe Billingham to say that the issue needs to be given the same priority and funding as counterterrorism, organized crime, and county lines, which she kind of did and didn't, and they go through several paragraphs of that with her doing officialese kind of speak, and there was just a lot of stuff I didn't understand, but I did have to look up what county lines are, Hmm. and what it is... Because it's a crime problem in the UK, are gang drug dealers who deal in more rural areas uh-huh. via telephone lines. Oh. It's a very specific type of crime that I'm not I sure guess. if we have here in the US. I'm sure we have something just as bad or worse, but that was a first for me and I. Back to violence against women and girls. The report was commissioned by Home Secretary Pretty Patel after Sarah Everard was snatched off the street by a cop and killed in March. Mm. The organization said the police response to violence against women and girls, quote, has improved, unquote, in the last five years, but there are still major concerns, including the, quote, staggering variation, unquote, in the way domestic abuse is dealt with across police forces in England and Wales. Billingham, the inspector of the constabulary, was pressed on whether it should be treated like those other types of crimes that I mentioned, and she said, they should be afforded a priority that is equivalent to those types of crime, although, of course, the way they would be dealt with would be different. And okay. she said a lot of other stuff, but that's the kind of the bottom line. The Guardian really kind of kept after her to make her say it should be dealt with those types of crime, and it was excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> the report found that prosecutions for rape had fallen by 59% and convictions by 47% since 2016, even as reported rapes have almost doubled. Billingham said approximately three out of four domestic abuse cases reported to the police are closed early without the suspect being charged. and Then inspectors uncovered huge discrepancies in how they use the domestic violence disclosure scheme known as Claire's Law, which provides confidential information about a person's criminal history to someone deemed at risk of future abuse the police have to disclose in some cases and people can ask there's like two different tracks for that but it's not being used right and i didn't do any research to see how old that law was or anything apparently it's not being used the way it's supposed to be a lot of the issues have to do with how different police forces approach violence against women and girls the report found inconsistencies at every level And obviously here in the U.S. with 50 states with wildly different laws and each with counties and local laws to boot, it would be a much tougher road to hoe. But it'd be nice if people were talking about it to the extent that they talk about it in the U.K. That's that update. The other update is to episode eight. And there were also many recent updates on this, the Maura Marie episode. And okay, thinking like an internet sleuth, this could only have happened. Because Liz and I took our drive to New Hampshire a of couple course. weeks ago. And went to the Maura Murray scene, including driving by Loon Mountain to get there. And we talked about it on the last episode of this podcast. So somebody must have been listening to us. Mm-hmm. And, and, this. and haha, as you longtime listeners know, I'm kidding. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how nuts I get driven by the myopia of the internet sleuthing world. Anyway. There's not a lot of information available, but bone fragments were recently found on Loon Mountain in Mm. New Hampshire. And they're being tested to see if they can be the remains of Maura Murray, who's been missing since February 2004. Loon Mountain is about 25 miles east of where Murray disappeared on February 9th, 2004. And it's on Route 112, the same route she disappeared from. Mm. No details were given on who found them, what exactly was found, when it was found, or where on Loon Mountain, which is a large mountain, it was found. There is a ski resort on the mountain, and it's at the southwest end of the White Mountains near North Woodstock, at the end of the Cancomaugus Highway and Route 3 intersection. Cancomaugus Highway is what Route 112 is through the White Mountains. New Hampshire State Police said, the investigation is ongoing and diagnostic testing on the bone fragments is pending to include determining the historical nature, age, and possible sex of the bone fragments. I didn't know bone fragments had sexes, but... Um, (laughs) police said it will most likely take a while to identify the bones, and they also said it's way too early to determine if they will be contacting the Murray family or any family. Julie Murray, Maura's sister, told journalists that, of all the zillions of tips, and that's my wording, not hers, that they've gotten over the years, this one feels a little different because of the location. And also, too, this is Maureen speaking, I think it's it's something substantive. Even if it's oh, not yeah. her, they are human bone fragments. Exactly. So it's more substantive than some of the idiotic bullshit that surrounds this case. And I don't want to go into the whole thing, but it would certainly support the theory I've had since February of 2004 that some asshole picked her up, assaulted yeah, and killed her and then dumped exactly. her down the road, which is obviously the most likely thing.
0: I just wanted to say that Hannah and I went to Storyland oh, yeah, right, right. yesterday, which is up in Glen, New Hampshire.
1: Near where Louisa put yes, us up here.
0: exactly. Pinkham Notch. And so I did drive by the Glen Ellen or Glen, Glen Ellis, sorry, Falls parking lot where she disappeared, although it was packed with people. It was a beautiful day. And I then I drove through the parking lot. I actually parked there because I was trying to get my cell service to...
1: Well, the AMC Hela. Lodge? Yes. Yeah.
0: And it's actually, even though I know I could have Googled it
1: and looked at it, um, it's actually a lot bigger and there's a lot of buildings there. It's not just like a... 20 years ago, I think it wasn't as extensive as it is now. The AMC, the Appalachian Mountain Club, has done a shit ton of work in New Hampshire and Maine the past 20 years as far as developing their areas that said it is i think it, we even talked about it in the episode the Louisa yeah. pu- episode that it is a hub you know the mm-hmm. Appalachian Trail comes through there and it's a stopover place for them and like when Liz and I were there a couple weeks ago there were a lot of obvious Appalachian Trail hikers hanging out yeah. and
0: I also as i said to you earlier and we did say that in November there's probably not as much traffic but it is a pretty big smooth wide highway it's not it's not a country
1: road relative everything's relative yeah
0: everything's relative but I'm just saying it's not
1: but what I'm saying for our listeners when you say highway it is a two-lane road it is a two-lane road but it's
0: wide and right and new and well-traveled it's not like a lot of things you can you can say route whatever and you're driving down it and it's a route yes but it's like a country road that it's right. hard to and, see and, and it is, is open it's wide open and right everything, it is so. the
1: major major north south route through um <coughs> eastern new hampshire you know yeah, through the mountains so, so, and like the conway area the southern part of it is has always been a traffic nightmare you know with the mountains and geography there aren't a lot of places other alternate routes but i will say too i've driven on there in the fall and it can be much more isolated. You know, the Mm -hmm. COVID has, people are just, people who would never enjoy the beautiful scenic parts of our states are coming out of the woodwork. In fact, the day Liz and I were there, we were gonna get out and go, you know, it's a three-tenths of a mile to Glen Ellis Falls, and we were going to kind of check it out, but there were just too many people, and it was like, oh.
0: Yeah, and you know, November, the leaf peepers are gone, and so it's probably pretty quiet by then, but still, I thought it was interesting to actually see it physically. Right, and
1: one interesting thing about that parking lot is I was picturing, and you can look it up. But I couldn't, even before I did our episode, get a good handle on it. And I know I had driven by it before and not really paid attention. But when you're there, you realize you go in and there's like an oval Mm -hmm. little roadway with a couple different parking areas and there's a lot of woods. But the trail she was found, you know, is kind of in the back. All that does is support my contention. That somebody either followed her from the AMC, which is mm-hmm. less than a mile up the road, or saw her pull in, or was there when she got there or something, saw an opportunity,
2: yeah.
1: um, not unlike probably what happened with or Exactly. And, and because of that isolated corner dragged her or something up the Glen Boulder Trail and killed her there. I don't want to go into it. We did a whole episode on it, but the whole thing, oh, she was hiking the Glen Boulder Trail, I think is just, she wasn't. She went there because it was shorter than Mm -hmm. taking the other trail. The clerk had suggested to her. But anyway, but I'm glad you guys went. And um, was Hannah interested in the...
0: No, I think she got a little uh, worried because I told her... What
1: happened there? <laughs> yeah, because uh, well, I'm a horrible he, mother. Everybody, you I know, was like,
0: "Oh, I want to see this parking lot where some her lady interest got in, murdered." Tru-
1: yeah, she, when there's <laughs> when there's a hundred tourists wandering around with slack jawed befuddlement, nobody's going to get murdered there. Yeah. Anyways,
0: but, uh, so I don't know what you're doing. I you you no will. Clue.
1: I had told you a few weeks ago, but I figured you'd forgotten. So I didn't want to remind you, but the you'll...
0: senility is contagious
1: in I know You'll be onto it soon enough. Okay. With probably in, within two words after I do my sources <laughs> introduction. Much of the information from this comes from the Bangor Daily News. Stories from that time using newspapers.com, our awesome source, and also more recent stories. I also found two affidavits, and I don't have Ooh. to tell you how ripe with information the those are. Anyone out there doing a podcast or writing about a crime, look for court documents, because that's where you're going to find the information nobody bothered to write about. A lot of good details. I also used the Season 3, Episode 6 of People Magazine Investigates Ooh. Murder Among Friends, which came out in 2018, and Season 1, Episode 18 of Unsolved Mysteries, Ooh. which aired in February 1989. And watching these reminded me, as always, there's a caution that these shows tend to mangle the truth, (laughs) so they're limited as far as source material, but they do have some good details. Um, There was also a cold case episode on this case, and maybe some others, but enough was enough, and I I didn't look for any more. Can I ask,
0: was it... Was it Robert Stack or yes. Dennis Farina? Oh, okay.
1: Robert Stack. And also, I know there have been a few podcasts on this case. I haven't listened to them, and I don't intend to. The um, script, as always, is originally mine, written from my own research and in my own words. Exactly. Not that I have to say that, but I'm um, just I know. So anyway, should I start? Yes. Okay. Joyce McLean. Ooh. 16. Left her home in East Millinocket, Maine, around 7.30 p.m. Friday, August 8, 1980, to go for a run. Normally, she'd run earlier in the day, but with the heat of August, she'd started to run after things cooled down in the evening. Joyce had spent the day babysitting and had then gone to the town pool for a swim and gone for a bike ride and gave a piano lesson. She's a busy girl. She got home around 7, and when she called her friend Laura Shea and asked if she wanted to go running with her, and a Bangor Daily News story written by a man later said that Joyce, quote, wanted to drop a few pounds, unquote. Mm -hmm. But in reality, she had started training for soccer season, so she was getting in shape for soccer season. So Joyce's friend, Laura's dad, said she couldn't go because Laura had to babysit. So the girls agreed Mm. to catch up with each other later. Joyce told her mother, Pam, she'd probably run to the high school and do laps around the soccer field. Pam knew and told police at the time that Joyce was near the end of her menstrual period. Mm. And I only bring this up because it becomes crucial later one of many issues in an investigation where police just didn't seem to be paying attention. Uh-huh. Pam was sitting on the front steps as Joyce, dressed in a terry cloth pink running top and shorts, with blue and yellow stripes on the side, jogged out onto the street and said, see you later, Ma. Uh-huh. Michael Benner, 14, was at his house on School Street when Joyce ran by around 745. He'd also seen her at the town pool earlier that day. She waved and said hi, and he watched her run toward the high school. Uh-huh. And by the way... Before I get too far in this, the high school is spelled S-H-E-N-C-K, and it's pronounced skank. Skank. And so I'm not making fun of it when I say skank. And they actually had a vote a few years ago to see if people wanted to change the name because skank, at least in the U.S., is a derogatory term. Yeah. But they resoundingly voted against changing the name.
0: Mm, good for so. them.
1: So, anyway... A few minutes after Michael Benner saw Joyce, a group of a few people saw her turn off Orchard Street onto a dirt road that ran by the first base side of the Little League field. The road led to the soccer field behind Skank High School. This was the last time anyone not connected to her death saw her alive.
2: Hmm.
1: When it got dark and Joyce hadn't come home, her mother got worried. She drove around looking for her. It had been a humid day and thunderstorms broke out with trenching rain, Mm -hmm. making the search difficult, but also making Pam more worried because Joyce wouldn't be out in that. When Pam got home, she called Joyce's father. The two were separated. He told her not to worry. Joyce would be home in a while. He assumed she was probably at a party that everyone in town seemed to know about. Pam, though, had a bad feeling, Mm. and she was right. By morning, Joyce still hadn't come home. Pam rustled up friends and family to start looking. At 1.20 p.m. on Saturday, Joyce's father, Michael McLean, called the East Millinocket Police Department to report her missing. Saturday night, a group of Joyce's friends and family gathered at Joyce's mother's house to set up a search plan for the next day. One of those attending was Peter Larley, a 20-year-old, who was not a particular friend of Pam. Huh. Joyce's mother thought his presence there seemed weird, but he was there to help, so she figured it was okay. Larley had also gone out that night with Joyce's father to help search for Joyce. Uh I don't really know why he was there, Joyce's mother later told the People show. And I'm just going to say People, but what I'm referring to is the TV show from 2018. People magazine did do a story in 2009 um, that I probably read at the time. The people show depicts Larley with weirdly dyed red hair but bushy, dark eyebrows. The actual Peter Larley, who is on the Unsolved Mysteries episode, is much less creepy looking. He's a burly guy with curly black hair. I guess
0: NNW, there'd be some points taken Well,
1: I know sometimes when some of our source material is from TV, we almost sound like we're doing a review, but Mm -hmm. I can't help myself with this stuff, particularly when it skews people's impressions, and there'll be more on that later. Larley, in fact, wasn't a creep at all, but later became a respected captain on the fire department and a popular and well-liked guy around town. No thanks to this investigation. The next morning, though, Sunday, August 10th, 1980, Larley got up at 6 a.m. and went out before the rest of the group had planned to go out. He found Joyce's body in a cleared-out power line path behind the high school soccer field. The area is variously described in newspaper and TV accounts as in the woods or behind the (laughs) soccer field or next to the soccer field. In reality, it's one of those cleared-out swaths of land that you find all over Maine and other wooded areas of the country where giant power poles and lines run through. It was accessed by a short path through the woods from the soccer field and was kind of a party spot. Joyce's body was lying face down with her head on a rock near an old stone wall, another thing you'll find throughout the Maine woods and Mm -hmm. those clearings. She was naked except for her shoes and socks, Her hands were tied behind her back Mm -hmm. with a piece of cloth. At first glance, it was obvious she'd been beaten, police said. Larley called out to her, and she didn't answer. He ran home and called the police. Larley took the police chief, whose name, I kid you not, was John Doe, (laughs) to the body. In the people reenactment, the chief is inexplicably dressed in a formal dress uniform, (laughs) though I'd have to believe... He'd either be in jeans and a flannel shirt, his church clothes since it's Sunday morning, or just a standard police uniform. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying, it was just kind of weird. Years later, on the 1989 Unsolved Mysteries episode, Larley said, It turned out to be a big part of my life that's really hurt me. I never expected what happened at all. I think he's not only talking about finding Joyce, but the aftermath directed Mm -hmm. at him. Local police made the mistake of covering Joyce's body with a blanket. Mm -hmm. When Maine State Police came, they made them remove the blanket. As anyone knows, even in those days before DNA testing, a blanket can transfer hairs, fibers, dirt, and other things to a body that either interferes with evidence or is seen as evidence when it's not. Mm-hmm. Penobscot County District Attorney David Cox told the Bangor Daily News that day that they didn't know much. Quote, It's a homicide, but right now that's all we know. An autopsy was performed later Sunday by state medical examiner Henry Ryan. It found she'd been killed by blunt trauma to the head and neck. He said there were several blows to her head and her skull was crushed. Mm. A huge blow to the back of her head was likely the fatal blow. Ryan determined she was killed sometime Friday night. The medical examiner wrote that there was, quote, a cloth appliance with a string attached extending from her vagina, Hmm. unquote. Before everyone gets all riled up, he's talking about a tampon. Mm-hmm. And again, this is important later. D.A. Cox told the Bangor Daily News that laboratory analysis to determine if she'd been sexually assaulted was, quote, quite sophisticated, whatever that meant, in 1980, and mm-hmm. its results would not be known for quite a while. Joyce, a rising junior at Skank High School, was on the honor roll, performed in musicals with the drama club, was in the band, the orchestra, was a cheerleader, was on the soccer team, basketball, and tennis teams. Uh Though many articles, of course, later described her simply as a cheerleader. I bet. She was also secretary of her class. She could play several musical instruments and could pick them up by ear, her mother said. Her tombstone has a guitar, a saxophone, and a piano on it. Uh She was particularly proficient in the saxophone and the guitar. She was in deep demand in town as a babysitter, And she was excited about getting her driver's license. She was going to turn 17 on September 4th and was making preparations for a birthday party, which was going to be a big bash at the family's lakeside camp. She was also described as not having an enemy in the world by a person who wasn't named. And the Bangor Daily News back then had a lot of quotes they didn't attribute to anybody, which is not good journalism. But, mm-hmm. quote, she was a beautiful person, another unidentified person, told the Banger Daily News, after her body was found. Everybody liked her. The DA, David Cox, told the BDN, I would concur with that opinion. Police scoured the area for evidence on Sunday and Monday, including using search dog Ben. Ben found Joyce's clothes tucked into the nooks and crannies of the stone wall about 75 feet from her body. He also found an el- electrical insulator which is a little bigger than a football, and it really heavy. It's made of glass mm-hmm. and ceramic. It's used to go around the wire connections on the power lines. And some
0: people collect them.
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. That's true, right? Shards yeah. of glass and ceramic similar to the makeup of the insulator were found on the rock where her head had lain. Police didn't tell the Bangor News what was found, though. They just said new evidence had been found in the case.
2: Mm. I'd
1: like to think that even a cursory search without Ben the dog would have found her clothes... tucked into that rock wall and the insulator, but given the other stuff in this case, I can't really be sure. Ben also tracked down another trail in the woods that came out into a driveway in a neighborhood near the school and the power lines and then stopped. By the way, there's a cute photo of Ben on the People magazine show. He's a nice German shepherd and he looks very happy to have done his job well. Assistant Attorney General Howard Bunker said that the evidence would be analyzed at the state crime lab in Augusta on Tuesday. We're not even sure if it's related to the case, he said, but we're hopeful, Mm. to which I say, um, wouldn't that make it possible evidence (laughs) and then not evidence? But anyway, Cox, the DA, told the Bangor Daily News that this case was, quote, a tough one, unquote. Little did he know in those early days just how tough it would Hmm. be. Among other things, here's a view on how things were looked at in 1980. The same day Joyce's body was found farther north in Aroostook County, Dean Panette, a 23-year-old man, stabbed and shot his girlfriend Linda Pelletier, 31 to death, mm. in Pelletier's home. A Fort Kent police officer found the bodies in Linda Pelletier's bedroom after Panette phoned his parents to tell him that he killed Pelletier and he was going to run away. Mm. They told him to call the police as well as their parish priest instead mm. of running away. The parents then drove to Pelletier's home. They lived about 10 minutes away and found blood in the kitchen. They called the police, who found the bodies. Pelletier had been stabbed multiple times in the neck and chest and shot in the head with a twenty two caliber rifle. Mm. Panette had then shot himself in the mouth, mm. but the bullet exited without doing any real damage. So he went to the gun cabinet in the kitchen, got a 7mm rifle, and shot himself in the chest. Oh. Linda Pelletier's six-year-old daughter apparently slept oh. through the whole thing in another experience. room of the mobile home. Dean Panette was described in the August 12, 1980 Bangor Daily News story as friendly and quiet. Oh. Linda Pelletier was described as attractive. Oh. They were set to be married August ninth and had visited relatives earlier in the day. Relatives said they seemed fine and happy. They looked like such a nice couple, said, quote, one observer who had seen the engaged couple in the front row pew of the church on that Sunday morning. Another unnamed
2: Mm, um, quote.
1: And, And the reason I know people may not think it's that important, but if you wonder why I'm so nitpicky about it, it's because not giving names to people for quotes is simply not done in journalism or wasn't when I was in it, unless the person has a really real... Really good reason not to be named. If you're not identifying people, you could just be making them up. I know that may not sound like a big deal to people, but when I was a reporter and editor you did not have anonymous quotes, especially for innocuous stuff like that. I know. You know, get people who will give your names to give you those quotes. Anyway, Aroostook County District Attorney John McElwee told the Bangor Daily News, We can only suspect that a lover's spat caused the tragedy. Oh, but I don't yeah. think we'll ever really know for sure.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: Now, you haven't been listening to this podcast for very long. (laughs) If you think I'm going to let that comment go by. (laughs) Granted, it was 1980, but things haven't really changed a ton on that front. A woman isn't stabbed multiple times and then shot with her child sleeping in another room or without in a lover's spat. (laughs) And it doesn't sound like anyone was going to look much farther when he says, oh, you will probably never know. Oh, well, such a nice couple. I wonder what Linda Pelletier would have said about all that if she'd lived Hmm. The Fort Kent murder suicide is in no way connected to Joyce's murder, but yet the Bangor Daily News lumped them together. These two incidents, 130 miles apart, lumped them together into one story on August hmm. 11th, hmm, 1980. That's interesting. Maybe they were just thinking of efficiency at the time. I don't know. The two things do have one thing in common. Murderous violence against a woman that the men in charge of investigating it weren't going to call what it was. Assistant Attorney General Leanne Zunia, who's been in many of our episodes, and I've probably mispronounced her name in every single one, <laughs> told people that the thought at the time was that Joyce's murder stemmed from an attempted sexual assault, given that she was naked with her hands tied behind her. There was, quote, no evidence of rape, unquote, but there was bruising to her thighs and around her vagina. People, the show says, that furthered the notion that her murder was sexually motivated. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of, quote, evidence of rape, unquote, apparently having to be severe injury to the vagina accompanied by sperm or whatever. We know by now, and they should have known even in 1980, that rape and sexual assault come in many forms. But yet, we often hear on podcasts and true crime shows that no evidence of rape means there wasn't a rape, mm-hmm. or worse, no sexual assault. And this, too, will become important later. I know I'm saying a lot of things will become important yes, later. Yes, I'm
0: waiting for later. Don't I'm worry.
1: So- <laughs> later will come, and I'll remind you okay. when the time comes. On August 14, 1980, the Bangor Daily News reported that advanced laser equipment in Toronto's Royal Canadian Laboratory was going to be used to analyze the evidence. The story said the laser equipment can help in seeing things like fingerprints on cloth. The fingerprints are then photographed. One issue was that the torrential rain the night of the murder, as well as the humidity before and after the rain, erased any forensic evidence on the scene. So they were desperate to find some. Uh. Assistant A.G. Bunker... Told the BDN that they'd also recovered what they think could be the murder weapon, though he wouldn't say what it was. East Millinocket is in the top end of Penobscot County in north central Maine. It's in the heart of the Maine Woods, and along with Millinocket, a few miles to the west, had a great northern paper mill that had been operating for a century. And the two mills were a large part of the region's economy. The most dominant geographic feature of the area is Mount Katahdin, the highest mountain in Maine the end of the Appalachian Trail, and the Crown Jewel of Baxter State Park. Still, it's not a hugely populated area. Both East Millinocket, with about 2,300 people at the time, and the larger town of Millinocket to the west with 7,500 people at the time, they're not both now much smaller because the mm-hmm. mills are gone, yeah. were built for the paper mill. If you look at a map of East Millinocket, it's laid out on a small grid pattern, which is not normal for most northern New England towns. Mm-hmm. The biggest nearby city is Bangor, with 31,000 people at the time, and at the time was Maine's second largest city, and it's about an hour away. So, as you can guess, people pretty much had to make their own fun. The party that night at Adam Austin's house was one the whole town would pretty much stop in and out all night, mm-hmm. Joyce's friend. Grant and said. Besides that party, teenagers and young adults were also hanging out at the high school drinking. It was a gathering place for teens during the summer since there was nowhere else to go. Assistant A.G. Bunker said that the amount of people in town the weekend Joyce was killed, who normally wouldn't be there and were strangers to those who lived there, included the 300 to 500 attendees of a softball tournament. Which went on until dusk that Friday night and drew people from Fort Kent to Portland, which is the entire length of Maine (laughs) for this wondering, The paper mill had also recently hired several hundred new workers from out of the area to build a new boiler. That's a lot of interviews, Bunker said. Mm. The footwork is enormous. State police detective Brian Strout, who later led the cold case investigation into the murder, said that no one thought someone local could have done it. Another thing, and this is Maureen speaking, that has always hindered investigations in yes, small exactly. da- towns and certainly hindered this one. The thinking at the time was that it had to be someone not familiar with choice, he said. And I'd like to emphasize, too, that all these softball people and construction workers were not in town at the same time, and they wouldn't have all, or even most of them, or even a fraction of them, been staying in East Millinocket. There are, and were back then, a few small hotels and one or two bars, but anyone who could commute probably was, and if people were staying overnight, they'd be staying in Bangor, more likely. There's just aren't, even now, are not places to stay overnight there. It wasn't like it was teeming with people at night. Still, the police had suspects, Bunker told the BDN, just not the evidence to charge any of them. Before Joyce was killed, the last known East Millinocket murder had been in 1939, when a police officer was killed in the line of duty. What most residents are wondering, said a BDN story a few days after the murder, was who and why and why Joyce? Another weird thing happened that Friday night that Joyce was murdered. Scott Fournier, 20, of the adjacent town of Medway, and who went to the same high school and church as Joyce, around 3 a.m. on Saturday morning, rode his bicycle to Federico Brothers Fuel and Hardware on Main Street in East Millinocket, stole an oil truck, crashed Hmm. it through the door of the garage where it was parked, roared onto Route 11, and hit a car less than a mile later in Medway, rolling the truck over. Fournier suffered a severe head injury that put him in a coma for eight days. More than 500 people attended Joyce's funeral at Calvary Temple Assembly of God Church in East Millinaca a few days after her murder. Minister Vinyl Thomas told the BDN that the first night of calling hours, they couldn't shut down until 2.15 a.m. The next day, people were lined up at 5 a.m. for the service. As police found no link to an outside murderer, though I'm not sure, given the investigations, how they could determine a link to anyone, Strout, the cold case investigator, said the mindset began to change. Maybe it could have been someone from here, he said with his eyes wide in wonder on the People magazine show. Joyce's friend, Teresa Bowden, told People that police sat down with her with their high school yearbook asking about different guys. They also asked if it could have been an older man. They also asked about Peter Larley, the guy who found the body, and whether he had a crush on Joyce. When it became clear that it could have been someone we know, that's when the rumors started, Joyce's friend Laura Shay said. On August 18th, eight days after Joyce's body was found, a headline in the Bangor Daily News said, "Police move to quell rumors and homicide." Mm. D.A. David Cox was joined by State Attorney General Fernand La Rochelle, mm-hmm. who has appeared in some of our, many yes. of our episodes, to yes. say that no arrests have been made. Cox said rumors are absolutely not true. There have been no arrests. As soon as we have a substantial case, we will make an arrest. La Rochelle said that rumors of an arrest have no substance whatsoever. He also said that they're inevitable in a case like this in a small town. Apparently, though the story cited rumors plural, it was just the rumor of one arrest that the two prosecutors addressed and the story referenced. They didn't name anyone, but it was likely Peter Larley. But there were other rumors as well. The 1989 Unsolved Mysteries episode said that the two major theories about the murder nine years later were that a gang of boys dragged Joyce from the soccer field and when she resisted their their rape attempts they killed her. The mm. other rumor was that it was one of the out-of-town workers at the mill and you'll see later where that first rumor came from. But yes, at first Larley because people thought he was weird and he found the body was a major public focus. And finding the body is sometimes a red flag especially since he went out that morning first thing yes. you know and found it. A week after the murder Pam came home to find Larley sitting on her front steps. Mm. It creeped her out and she just had a feeling maybe he was involved. Strout, the cold case detective who joined the investigation in 2008, said police spent a lot of time investigating Larley. Quote, because he was one of those folks whose name come up and we knew he had to clear. Well, yes, Strout is talking about clearing it later as part of the cold case investigation. I think in 1980, they weren't trying to clear him. <laughs> they were yeah. trying to pin him, you know, nail it on him. And as, like I said, finding the body is a red flag. But he was also strange and the People magazine makes a lot of hay out of him being strange and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But a major part of looking into Larley was looking into what he was doing the night of the murder. It turns out he'd spent most of the evening hanging out at the high school. Again, keep this in mind as we go on that it makes sense that whoever killed Joyce probably was at the high school or was seen by people at the high school because the way to access where she was found was through the the athletic fields there. Mm Mm-hmm. So even if it wasn't Larley, he may have seen something significant, but it's not clear if the police early on asked him or the people who were there with him if they'd seen anything else. They just wanted to talk about Larley, the police did. Mm. He was with a bunch of people who were drinking beer and four-wheeling in the woods around the school. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, his alibi checked out. Larley also passed a polygraph, and you know what my opinion is (laughs) on that. Basically, whoop de doo But as the case went unsolved, a cloud of suspicion hung over him. Mm Even in the 2018 People magazine show, which, spoiler alert, comes after an arrest was made and it wasn't Larley, the show still made him out to be a suspicious weirdo. Cox, the DA, told the Banker Daily News the week after the murder that hundreds of people had been interviewed, which is quite a trick, I think, since the case was just a week old. You have to wonder Mm. what those interviews consisted of. Okay, I know. That's another thing you can add to my We'll Talk About Later file. Okay. A couple days later, a story headlined Homicide Rate this year about the same in the past by A.J. Higgins, who's appeared in some of our episodes, ran in the Bangor Daily News. It's fairly short and gives you an idea of of how things were looked at in 1980 and maybe one reason why this case took so long to solve, so I'm I'm just going to read it to you because it's fairly short. A homicide captivates a newspaper reader's attention in a way few articles can. Maybe it's one of those key words that can be found in the headline, slain or killed, Because of the capital nature of the crime, one homicide can stay in the papers for what some have termed an insufferable length of time. Perhaps that is why it seems as though there have been more homicides in the state this year than in the past. And I just want to break in here to say, I looked it up and there were 36 in
2: 1980,
1: which wasn't high for them, but would be high now. Back to the story. According to the Maine Attorney General's office, however, the number of homicides in the state is just about the same as it has been for the last three years. Quote, to date, we've had 19 murders in the state, said Sue Winslow of the Attorney General's office. This same time in 1979, we had 22 and 21 in 1978. Richard C. Rideout of the Maine Uniform Crime Reporting Division said Tuesday that it appeared that Maine would log no great increase in homicides this year. The total for 1979 was 31 and 30 for 1978. Penobscot County has had its share of killings. 10 in 1978, 2 in 1979, and 2 so far in 1980. Ending a long career in law enforcement this year, Penobscot County Sheriff Otis Labrie said Mm. that the characteristics of a homicide often reflect the region in which the crime is committed. Quote, more of our murders are committed in a heat of passion in Maine, Mm. said Labrie. It can be a family thing or a girlfriend boyfriend thing. Mm. Lately, we've had the drug thing. Before that, it was not uncommon to investigate a murder where a boyfriend or a husband had physically fought with his girlfriend or wife. Sometimes the man would hit the woman harder than he meant to. Sometimes he might choke the woman harder than he meant to. LaBrie said the more grisly slings are committed in rural areas of the state. You won't see too many axes around Bangor, not like what you'd see in Millinocket or Patton, he said. (laughs) In the rural areas, an axe is more accessible. In the country, an axe is an everyday tool. If you follow your murders, you'll find that murders tend to be more sophisticated than the city. In the rural areas, you'll have less sophisticated murders. Incidents where a shotgun is the murder weapon. But shotguns are pretty common at many times during the year in the back of pickup trucks in the country. The sheriff said that during his tenure as a lawman in a rustic Penobscot counties, he had seen instances in which axes, chainsaws, pickaxes... Even two-by-fours have been used as the weapon. Mm. It just depends on what is handy at the time. LaBrie said the majority of slings in Maine can be tied indirectly to alcoholism. Mm. Because of the mixing of drinking... And I think what they really mean is alcohol, not necessarily alcoholism. But anyway, because of the mixing of drinking and holidays, he said, holiday (laughs) periods tend to present the greatest opportunity for potential homicide. Quote, it's because of the drinking, he said. Arguments about money that are brought on by drinking, especially at Christmas time. We had an axe murder once at Christmas. (laughs) Most of the homicides in Maine are not premeditated, Labrie said. He cited the recent death of Joyce McLean as an example. The 16-year-old was found slain August 10th near a soccer field behind Skank High School in East Millinocket. Quote, that little girl, I think, was the victim of a spur-of-the-moment thing. Hmm. Somebody was waiting for her and knew what she was doing and went after her. I don't think a murder was the intent in that case either. And my issue, and I think it became an issue in investigating this case, and I think it's still an issue today, is that the idea that it's the spur of the moment, ooh, they're fighting and the guy uses more force than he wanted and they're not planning and stuff, Ugh. instead of looking at red flags that lead you to realize somebody's a danger. Exactly, It's a pattern that's right. led but, up to that. Right, like that Claire's Law in the UK... That Mm -hmm. allows people to be notified that we don't have. An August 22nd story disclosed that hypnosis had been used on witnesses in Joyce's murder. Maine State Police Sergeant Ralph Pinkham said it had been used to develop investigative leads. He said it's used for witnesses who can't consciously remember, but subconsciously can. Quote, It's nothing new and has been used quite often, he said. He said it has been used in several homicides, and I assume he means local ones. Quote, if needed, we will use any technique available. Mm. And I think this points to the desperation already less than three weeks after the murder and also a lack of sophistication in the investigation. That's just my, and I bet I know what a lot of you are thinking, junk science. And if you are, you're Right. Hypnosis has been used in the U.S. as an investigative tool since just after World War II. It really came into vogue in the late 1970s after it was used in that California school bus hijacking Mm. where 26 kids were held captive and the bus driver could recall the license plate of the captors under hypnosis. But as the understanding of how memory works evolves, it's become much more suspect. A 2019 article in The Guardian reported that a psychologist named Steve Lynn who used to be a big advocate of hypnosis, had started to find hypnosis actually harmed subjects' recall. It led them to, quote, recover, unquote, at least as many false memories as accurate ones, while increasing their confidence in their memory's accuracy. That maybe they're having a very vivid experience during hypnosis, but the experience is not necessarily what really happened. By 2019, when that article by Ariel Ramchandani was written, 27 states in the U.S. had already banned hypnosis for use in court. I could not find an accurate list of these states, or if Maine is one of them. Mm. But anyway, the use of it has been an ongoing battle for decades, probably better for another episode to get more into it, but I'll say in the case of the Joyce McLean murder, the investigators probably would have been better off using standard investigative tools, exactly. interviewing good old gumshoe canvassing and some good old-fashioned common sense, and maybe this crime <laughs> would have been solved earlier. <laughs> on August 25th, in a Bangor Daily News story, Pat Perino, chief of the Attorney General's Criminal Division, praised police, as they always do, patting each other on the back. He noted how local police game wardens and state detectives do a shoulder-to-shoulder search after her body was found found 11 items that were sent to Toronto to be examined by the lasers Ooh. he didn't say if that revealed anything and also Ben the dog I think gets a lot of credit yes
0: ben. for what was
1: found and the fact that he's just touting the fact that they found evidence you know good for them He also said they were narrowing the list of suspects and the hypnosis of a few witnesses, Mm -hmm. though I'm not sure what they were witnesses to, had been very successful. Mm. The next day, there was another interesting item in the paper. Perino said they were making progress on the July murder of Rita St. Peter, It couldn't have been a heck of a lot of progress because St. Peter's murder, which happened in Madison, Maine, 100 miles to the west of East Millinocket, wouldn't be solved until 2012. Wow. Noticing a pattern here? There were and still are a lot of Maine cold cases related to the murder of women. Now, I guess as long as cops, like Sheriff Labrie earlier, see crimes against women as guys getting mad and then going too far, but they didn't mean it to happen, it's going to be tough Mm -hmm. to solve them. Anyway... Perino said in that article about St. Peter and McLean that he wouldn't release the cause of death for St. Peter. He said he was still steaming about the fact that the cause of death had been released in Joyce's case. They had released the cause of death, blunt trauma to the head, but not details about the wounds in particular and that's significant later too. Police were definitely getting desperate for answers. On September 5th investigators announced they'd gone to the FBI for a profile of Joyce's killer. They explained what a psychological profile was in the story, which I won't go into since this is 2021 and not 1980. (laughs) But they wouldn't release any details of the profile. They also used a psychic who led police, wait for it, to the spot where Joyce's body was found. And that was it. Oh, well. The story noted that in the month since Joyce was killed, police had used hypnosis, polygraphics, and psychological programming. Sergeant Ralph Pinkham said, People are starting to wonder what we are doing. We have had a minimum of three detectives working 24 hours a day on this case. Mm. We are using every possible resource, and we are not giving up. New names are still coming up. We are working very hard with all of our resources. Pat Perino from the AG's office told the BDN he was optimistic. Quote, I still think this case is one of those cases that will be solved. Mm. I'm not saying it will be solved tomorrow, but we have some very good leads that have led us to other leads. Mm. Police on September 18th, six weeks after the murder, interviewed Scott Fournier, the kid who'd stolen the oil truck in the wee hours of the morning the same night Joyce was killed. The storyline now, all these years later, is that his memory was affected by head trauma, which made interviewing him difficult, Assistant AG Leanne Zania said on the 2018 People Show, quote, He suffered a traumatic brain injury, and he seemed to be disoriented. He really wasn't making sense. Mm-hmm. But actually, in his first police interview, if you read the affidavits on September 18, 1980, six weeks after Joyce's murder, his memory was pretty detailed and clear, and he made plenty of sense. Fournier's stepbrother, Sammy Powers, later said that when he visited Fournier in the hospital after the accident, quote, there was nothing wrong with his memory when he came to. Mm. When police interviewed Fournier for that first time on September 18th, he said he'd gone to the pool with Jeff Spirian the afternoon of August 8th around 2. He later changed that to Leroy Spirian, which was who he was actually with. At three, they went to Opal Merrick Elementary School, where they started drinking vodka and Bacardi. He said they didn't go anywhere near Skank, but that elementary school, from what I can tell, appears to be on the same property as the high school or near it. And also,
0: it's a pretty small town. Yeah, it's it's a
1: very small town, yeah. At four, a girl named Cindy Nelson joined them. Fournier eventually went home for supper, then came back to the school. He got a ride from his stepfather, where he drank until dark. Hmm. He said he doesn't remember much after that until he crashed the truck. Hmm. He also said he didn't know Joyce McLean and, quote, she didn't talk to me that day either. Fournier definitely had a clear memory about what happened that day. His memory problems, quote unquote, would come later and for a very good reason. But the prosecution and police revisionist adherence to the narrative now, all these years later, helps them out. Mm. In December 1980, Fournier went into a rehab center to dry out. In July 1981, he was sentenced to two years for burglary and unauthorized use of a vehicle related to that oil truck crash that night, that night that Joyce was killed, according to a July 9, 1981, court listing in the Bangor Daily News. It's unclear how much time he served. It's possible that the rehab got him some time served or probation. In any case, incarceration was nothing new for Fournier. He'd also been convicted of burglary and unauthorized taking in 1979, and he was again in 1984. In November, police brought in a, quote, expert criminologist, unquote, from Montgomery, Alabama to help. It apparently didn't. Mm -hmm. Any progress that had been made in Joyce's murder slowed to a standstill, at least what was released to the public. But there was stuff going on behind the scenes, mostly to do with Scott Fournier at this point. After that first interview on September 18, 1980, police didn't talk to Fournier again until May 5th, 1981. It's not clear why he was re interviewed, but in that one, he told them he remembered being drunk and tripping over Joyce's body that mm-hmm. night. They took Fournier to the scene where he pointed out accurately where her body was found and also accurately details about how it was, you know, she was on her stomach and stuff. Mm -hmm. And also he knew details about her injuries that hadn't been made public. And by the way, everything when I talk about these interviews with police comes from either police affidavits that I'll post to our website when I get the chance or from court testimony. Fournier's next police interview was a week later on May 12th, 1981. But before that police interview... Fournier had his stepfather, Wayne Powers, drive him to Calvary Temple Church so Fournier could talk to the pastor, Vinyl Thomas. Mm. This is the same pastor that was Joyce's pastor and did her memorial service. While his stepfather waited outside, Fournier told Thomas he'd killed Joyce, but that he hadn't sexually assaulted her because Mm. she had her period. Thomas said he wouldn't believe Fournier unless he told him in front of his mother and stepfather. Mm. So his mother, Anita, and stepfather Wayne Powers joined them. Fournier told them he'd done something incomprehensible. He was crying uncontrollably and said, I killed Joyce McLean. I didn't mean to, Mama. In the course of the conversation, he confessed three times, Final Thomas said later. He described the murder weapon, which police had never made public, as a large clumsy object that he had to hold with two hands. He said he hit her on the back of the head with it. Police had never made public where that fatal blow was struck. Hmm. He said, quote, He tried to have sex with her, but it was that time of the month, unquote and that she had a pad or something in or on her. Thomas took Fournier to Bangor to talk to Maine State Police. Instead of taking them to the local, he took him to Bangor. Later, Fournier's mother said that it was Thomas's idea to take Scott to Bangor, but Thomas said it was Fournier's mother who asked him to do it, saying if he turned him in locally, quote, they'll lynch him. Hmm. A state police detective, who I don't think was involved in the case, interviewed Fournier in the Bangor Police Department while Thomas waited outside. By the time Fournier got to Bangor, which was an hour away, he'd had a little time to think. He told the detective that Joyce had been tied with a rope, not her clothing, and that he, quote, had a feeling that three guys sexually assaulted her. He also said she kicked him in the leg and he hit her in the back of the head with an electrical insulator. Fournier was sent home with the minister. He wasn't arrested. On May 15th, 1981, state police investigators on the case interviewed him about what he told the other cop in Bangor fournier said basically that it was a dream and he couldn't have killed joyce he wouldn't do something like that his account of what he had done on august 8th had changed too he said he'd been home until 4 p.m i think he had seen joyce at the pool and he didn't want to tie himself to anything that had to do with her that day yeah
0: that probably
1: still while on september 18th six weeks after the murder he'd said he didn't know joyce in this interview he told police um that she was cute and had a nice smile He said, all I remember is tripping over her and my hand felt her arm. It was cold. I saw the right side of her head and I don't remember anything after that. I started running down the pole line. I was drunk and I tripped. And I remember the oil truck rolling over. When they brought up that that wasn't the same thing he'd told them before and asked if he remembered what he'd told investigators, he said that he told the cop in that Bangor interview that I raped Joyce and that I hit her with a telephone insulator and that I kicked her but then said, I remember these things, but I know they weren't a part of my memory. They were things I made up. I told them I did that, which I didn't, because I'm not that way. I said I did it because I thought I had done it. Uh, They asked him what he told them about her hair, and he said, I told them it was tied back with a ribbon. And that's another accurate detail that wasn't released to the public.
2: Hmm.
1: He also said in the May 15th interview, that Joyce was lying on her stomach with her hands tied behind her back and her face turned to the side. Quote, I saw the left side of her face with a cut and a bruise on her forehead. When asked why he'd told investigators he'd struck her with the electrical insulator, he said it's because he struck her with it. Though he changed it to a single blow on the left cheek instead of the back of the head. He said as far as he knew, she was alive when he last saw her. He also said he stole the oil truck because I wanted to kill myself. Mm. Sonia and Strout both told that People TV show in 2008 that since the information was inconsistent with the evidence and Fournier didn't remember enough, that's why they let him go and didn't arrest him in 1981. They make it sound like it was a logical decision, which, as you know by now, is bullshit. He mm. mentioned the insulator and knew things about her injuries that the public didn't know and the fact she had her period, which even the investigators at the scene didn't know. The fact that he said rope instead of clothing for what her hands were tied with, or that he said her clothes were yellow when they were largely pink with a yellow stripe shouldn't have been that big a deal given no. the accurate things he said. It's also interesting that the People's Show retelling of this doesn't mention that much of the interview was consistent with the crime scene and let and Strout get away with talking about the inconsistencies as a logical reason that police would reject the confession. Part of the new narrative perpetuated by the People Show is that the Bangor interview was not recorded and the notes were lost. But actually, the cop who did that interview testified many years later in court about it. And also, the cops on May 15, 1981, obviously knew what had been said. Now, they may not have added those notes to the case file, but they definitely knew what was said in Bangor at the time.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Fournier was eventually interviewed 27 times by the state police, though the May 15th interview where he backed off his confession was the last one until June 1984. And I suspect he was re-interviewed again in 1984 because he was busted for burglary, and I think they were hoping that um, with the specter of a prison sentence in front of him, and nobody said this, but this is my guess, because why else would they interview him three years later, but that maybe he would talk and give him some information. Mm -hmm. He was interviewed three times in 1984, then twice in 1986, twice in 1988, and once in 1989. Then he wasn't interviewed again until March 2007, Mm -hmm. and then not again until September 2008, when the investigation picked back up with the cold case team. In his interviews, he changed the story many times, and he particularly liked the gang rape narrative, Mm. changing the names of who was involved, whether he was involved or not, whether they forced him to do it or he just saw them go into the woods. Sometimes he was part of it, sometimes he just stumbled over the body. Despite the fact his memory seemed pretty sharp in that September eighteenth, 1980 interview, as well as his confession to the pastor and his parents, Police take at face value that his memory was affected by the accident. They believe all the associated vagueness and dreams are for real. Ugh. Zania told people that because of the brain injury and the way he depicted info, quote, nothing he said could really be relied upon. And that did color how law enforcement officials viewed what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Apparently, from what I can tell, they discounted his confession so much that they never went back and started doing basic investigation of him. This was less than a year after the murder, when people's memories would have been better and they could have found more people who would have seen Fournier that night, but apparently they didn't go back and and ask anybody if he'd been at the scene. And again, they did a lot of asking people about Peter Larley, who'd been Mm -hmm. up at the high school... You would think when they did that, they would have said, who did you see? Who else was up here? Blah, blah, blah. And you'll see in a few minutes that they would have found out stuff. Also, People depicts... Fournier telling all these stories as his memory beginning to recover. Mm. And that's obviously not what happened. It's much more a case of Fournier playing the cops. Yeah. One of his accounts has Joyce at the party and the group of boys who attacked her dragged her away from the party. But no one else said they saw her there and her friend Laura Shea said she was very, very confident that if Joyce was going to that party, she would have told her. Also, I'm sorry, you don't have to actually have ever been a 16-year-old girl to know that she's going to go home and shower and change after going for a run on a hot night before going to a party. Not go straight from running in her running clothes, especially since she had her period. Exactly. One thing Fournier does do is implicate a bunch of guys. Even though police, as Zania said, can't really believe anything he says, they do seem to believe all this shit about all these other guys. (laughs) Police managed to clear all these guys, all of whom were at that party, except for Joyce's friend, Grant Boynton. Grant had been at the party and said he drank so much that there was no way he could have gone anywhere and done anything. <laughs> there was, though, a period of time that no one could account for his whereabouts when he was outside throwing up. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, a party like that, who who can account oh for anyone's God. time? I
0: didn't think of parties I went to and. 1980, and there was no way I would have... Right. In fact, I had to
1: laugh at the People show reenactment of the party, which did remind (laughs) me of parties I'd been at (laughs) in that era. And like I said, well, police couldn't really believe anything Scott said because, you know, brain injury, someone who wasn't brain injured that they could zero in on was Grant Boynton. My guess was this would be around the time of the 1984 interviews since he didn't seem to name any names in the May 1981 interviews. Quote, they just picked me up and hauled me right off the street, gave me the white hot spotlight treatment, Boynton said on The People Show. And I didn't have a clue where all this information came from. Actually, he said it with a main accent, but I'm not <laughs> going to do that. One reason I like watching these main ones when they interview people is I like hearing the main accents. But Yes. He was given a lie detector test, which was inconclusive. Detective Brian Strout on The People Show defines inconclusive as, he can't differentiate between maybe involvements in different things. It's not really a fail, unquote. Right. I want to once again say polygraphs are a joke. There are so Mm -hmm. many factors, including who is giving it, what is asked, and what it's really showing that inconclusive basically just means they can't find anything definitive, not really have to do with what Grant can differentiate between or not. And maybe inconclusive as a result of a scared teenage boy being hauled in by the cops and bombarded with information related to a murder of his friend and had nothing to do with, and he was drunk that night. Just saying.
0: Exactly.
1: Even though he passed the second polygraph, Fournier by now was insisting to the police that Grant was the murderer. He told them he saw Grant come out of the woods alone without Joyce after going in with her. (laughs) And if you're wondering why the cops didn't ask Fournier, gosh, why didn't you tell us this in the first half dozen interviews we had with you? It's because they see it, apparently, as him recovering his memory. Oh, his memory, yes. The cops haul Grant in for a second interview and tell him, you might as well confess, we know you did it. They were accusing me of what Fournier told them, and I felt like I could get framed for this at any point in time, Grant said on The People Show. But, at least he was smart enough to stick to what he knew, that he was at the party all night. He was wicked drunk and he couldn't have left if he'd wanted to. And also, my guess, if I'm right, that the police were interviewing Fournier because he had that 1984 burglary charge. You'd think the police would be savvy enough to know that somebody is going to start feeding them information in the hopes that he'll get a lighter sentence or something, and I can find no information anywhere about what he was sentenced to or what happened with that charge Mm. or anything. While the police never charged him, the accusations ruined Grant's reputation in the Mm. Katahdin region. Joyce's mother says Grant had a hard time getting a job after that. It caused him hell, she said. Zania said that Fournier gave police different names over the years, quote, We have to track down what information he provided, she said. (laughs) While police were led on this merry chase by Fournier, one of the cops eventually picked up what looked like a more promising lead and also conformed to their killer from away theory. On a Friday in March 1983, 19-year-old Christina Gridley of Orono, which is just north of Bangor and more than an hour from Millinocket, put on her McDonald's uniform and was hitchhiking on U.S. Route 2 to her noon shift at the McDonald's and Brewer. She never showed up. The following Monday, two rabbit hunters found her partially clad body on a tote road outside of LaGrange, farther north of Bangor. She was killed by a blow to the head, and her clothes were found stuffed between rocks and a stone wall. Mm. Which, like, how many killers are going to do that? But DA David Cox, the same DA who was on Joyce's case three years earlier, said at the time that there was no connection they could see between her murder and any of the other unsolved murders in the state. Seems like they were pretty quick to discount connections. In June 1983, Joe Albert of Bangor and Harold Glidden of Holden were indicted and charged with Justina Gridley's murder. This wasn't Albert's first murder charge, Rodeo. In 1975, he was indicted for shooting Louisa Hooper, 25 a Brewer, who was his employer at an auto parts business. He pleaded guilty to manslaughter. And though the prosecution asked for a harsher sentence, he was given 8 to 20 years, oh, which means he could be out in less than 8 years. At the sentence, Judge Harold Rubin said, "'Judging from your past, I would say society runs little risks that you will ever do anything like this again.
2: Uh-huh. Very obviously,
1: you are in a situation you are unable to handle.' So that I doubt very much punishment is going to change you in any way. Poor
0: kid. He could just was having a hard day. Yeah.
1: Yes. Police weren't happy with the short sentence. At the time, one officer, who the BDN did not name, told the newspaper, what? a longer sentence could mean the difference between life and death. The cop was right. Despite the fact Albert escaped from the state prison in Thomaston and was on the loose for a month before he turned himself in during his sentence... Police said at the time he wasn't dangerous. He was given a one year suspended sentence for the escape, and he was paroled in May 1980.
2: Oh my the God. judge
1: was right about one thing punishment didn't change Albert. Mm. Because there he was in 1983 raping and murdering another woman. He and Glidden were wanted for a string of burglaries around the time Justina was killed. And they were pulled over for a bad tailpipe on Glidden's truck. And the warrant for the burglaries came up and then that's how they were somehow... And it's a, I won't go into all the details on the Gridley case because that could be an episode in itself. Oh, anyway, okay. Albert was sentenced to 70 years in prison in May 1984. The timeline isn't clear, but at some point after 1986, when Detective Joe Zamboni joined the state police Joyce McLean team, he was reviewing cases that could possibly be related. Joe Zamboni. Yeah, I know, and was struck by the clothes stuffed in the rock wall thing. The people's story implies it was at the same time Gridley was killed or before, while Albert was still working in a Bangor bar, and that someone overheard him saying he'd been in Millinocket when McLean was killed. In reality, Zamboni wasn't even on Joyce's team until 1986, so that didn't happen. Zamboni had Joyce's mother, Pam, write a letter to Albert in prison. Pam pleaded with him to tell her if he killed Joyce. He wrote back and he told her he didn't, and if he said he did, then you'll never find out who really killed her. Zamboni didn't believe Albert. He had an elaborate theory, none of it based on any evidence, that had Albert, who didn't have any transportation in 1980, getting a friend to drive him in a van to Millinocket, where he killed Joyce. Zamboni may have thought of this because Albert was driving a van with Clinton when they picked up Justina Gridley and killed her, but Pam, Joyce's mother, points out that if some stranger had drove a van into East Millinocket, an hour away from Mangor, to pick up Joyce to rape and kill her, they're not going to dump her there, basically, in the middle of town. I know. Indeed, Albert had dumped Justina miles away from where they picked her up. Needless to say... The Joe Elbert theory never picked up a lot of steam, though Zamboni apparently believed it and lived by it until he retired in 2004, which I can only believe severely hampered the investigation. Oh, yeah. Quote, by the time I retired, I felt very comfortable that the person responsible was not a local person, he told the Bangor Daily News in a 25th anniversary story in 2005. He didn't name any names, but he was obviously talking about Elbert. Quote, when you look at the crime, when you look at what happened, this is not a crime that was committed by a local teenager. This is a crime committed by a very serious sociopath. Which, give me a break. You know how many women, especially back before DNA testing, were killed like that in Maine? I know. I know. He also said that the person he believed is responsible, quote is in a position he's not going to be able to do it again. I'm going to leave it at that. He's no longer a threat to society. So obviously, you know, he's talking about Joe Albert, who was stuck in the state prison for 70 years. Frustrated by the police investigation, and how can you blame her, Pam McLean started an organization called Justice for Joyce in 1986. That same year, she asked the state attorney general's office to take over the case. It didn't. Justice for Joyce did things like hire private investigators and raise awareness, keeping the case in the forefront, and pushing police, including getting it on Unsolved Mysteries in 1989 with a petition signed by more than 6,000 people, which Robert Stack remarks on on the show. Joyce said on that Unsolved Mysteries episode she always thought the case could be solved, and she wasn't sure why it wasn't. I wasn't an easy mother to push in the closet, she said later. I got loud, rude, crude, ignorant, And she means ignorant in the main sense, which is basically rude Rude. and not caring what other people say. Quote, anything that it was going to take for them to do something. I read somewhere that the police were frustrated with her reaction and her pushing for things. But when you have lead investigators on the case believing it couldn't have been done by a local teenager, even after one confessed, you really can't blame the woman. And it's her daughter. So, I know. Where
0: you're a family member of yours, you're going to do whatever. And want. I know
1: the police work hard and blah, 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 but this case is an absolute example of how things could be done better. In 2008, as DNA tests evolved, Pam McLean asked the state to exhume Joyce's body, but they refused, saying too much time had gone by. She raised the money to do it privately, and pathologists Michael Bodden and Henry Lee did the honors. Ooh, Henry Lee. So that was a coup for the Justice for Joyce team. Yeah. Wayne Powers, Fournier's stepfather, saw a story about it in the paper and about possible DNA evidence and said, it's about time, to which Fournier replied, well, even if they find DNA, they're still going to have to prove when it got there. They <laughs> didn't find any DNA that wasn't Joyce's, and they theorized the downpours that night, you know, washed away yeah. any evidence. They did find some unidentified hairs, but since local cops had thrown a blanket over her, who knew where the hairs came from? And as we know, hair identification is mostly junk science. Anyway, one effect the exhumation did have was to kick the state police into opening the case back up, and that's when the cold case team took over in 2008. The new investigators noticed, and I put that in giant, huge, honking (laughs) quotes, that Fournier's pastor had brought him to the station for an interview back in May 1981. Hmm, they wonder. Maybe we should talk to the pastor. Now, I find it hard to believe that Fournier was that far off the radar and the new cops didn't know anything about it in his confessions back in 1981. But maybe with Zamboni focused on the Joe Albert theory, nothing, I, I don't know, things had just fizzled out and people forgot. You would think that would have been in the case file. But anyway... They chased Final Thomas, the pastor, down to Florida, where he'd retired, and he told them about the May 1981 confession. And People magazine shows this, like, nobody knew that this thing happened in 1981. But again, it's like, sorry, people, you'll see, people knew. Yeah. The fact that Fournier City hit her with the insulator and that she had her period, both things that have never been made public, quote, blew detectives' minds, <laughs> according to the People show. I think if they'd reviewed the case file, it shouldn't have. He brought that stuff up more than once in those early interviews before he got on the gang rape jag. The People Show also implies that the medical examiner never told cops about her period, but it must have been in his report. And I find it hard to believe, given discussion of possible sexual assault, that the original cops didn't know she had her period. Quote, when that came out, he starts looking like the guy, cold case detective Brian Strout said. But... This is Maureen. Let's look back at the history of this confession. And this is from um, an affidavit. It wasn't just in 1981 that all this was clear to investigators. According to an affidavit, on June 20th, 1989, Joe Zamboni talked to Vinyl Thomas, the pastor, who again said that Fournier told him he'd hit McLean in the back of the head with an insulator and he tried to have sex with her, but she had her period. So this shouldn't have blown investigators away just nine years later. One of the people, narrators say... Detectives theorized that the truth had been hiding in plain sight all along. God. I say, no, it wasn't <laughs> hiding. It was sitting right out there like a slab of fucking day-old meatloaf on a dinner plate. Sorry. An
0: interesting metaphor. Well, I, I,
1: I was... Here are the things the cold case cops came up with that the cops did or should have known in the days after the murder, besides the whole confession that Joe Zamboni, who was on the case till 2004, when he retired, knew about. Scott Fournier was fixated on Joyce. His stepbrother, Sammy Powers, said one day that summer, the two boys spent several hours talking to her on her front steps, and Fournier told his stepbrother afterwards that he had a thing for her, and this was possibly a day or two before the murder. Earlier in the day... Joyce was killed, Fournier asked his stepfather, Wayne Powers, if he knew the McLeans. He told his stepfather he'd been at the house the previous day and he was going to give up smoking and start jogging, which his stepfather thought was odd because Fournier never did anything athletic. Later that day, Powers gave Fournier a ride from their home in Medway to the East Millinocket Pool. That's the day she was killed. Fournier said he was going to meet Leroy Spearin there. And again, I can't help but wonder that if Joyce had mentioned when he and his stepbrother were over at her house that she was going to be at the pool that day. Mm. Nolan Tanus and Randy Bannis were hanging out at the high school the night Joyce was murdered. Fournier and another guy in their class, the aforementioned Leroy Spearin, moseyed up to say hi. They were drinking hard liquor out of a pint bottle. The two were acting drunk and silly and eventually wandered over to the path that went around the side of the school toward the soccer fields. Tannous and Bannis went for some food, and when they came back less than an hour after they'd seen Fournier and Spearin, this was around 8.15 now, they saw Spearin sitting alone on the steps. They asked him where Fournier was, and he said he didn't know. He'd taken off. They said Spearin looked white as a ghost and also started pacing and mumbling to himself and acting really weird. They put it down to him being drunk. Hmm. Tannous told this to cold case investigator Brian Strout in 2009. It's not clear if cops at the time Joyce was murdered asked people who'd been at the school if they'd seen anything odd like that or had talked to Tannous and Bannis. You would think they would have because they were trying to well, nail Peter Larley. Yeah. And they had to interview people who'd been at the school that night trying to break his alibi. Zania says in the People magazine, there were people who knew stuff that they didn't realize was significant. Mm-hmm. And it's not up to them to realize No shit, that's
0: what an investigation's for. Right,
1: if I were, and I know I'm banging the drum here, obviously whoever killed her either was at the school or had to walk through its grounds to get to the area she was killed, it would have been that time of night because she was out running. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like she was going to be out there all night in her running clothes. So I would think the most elementary thing about an investigation would be to interview every single person there about who they'd seen, who they'd talked to. And this interaction with Fournier and Spearin was notable enough to these two guys that they thought it was very weird and it stuck in their mind. Here's some other things. At 8.35 p.m., an East Millinocket cop saw Fournier and Spearin near the high school. In 1983, three years after Joyce was killed, Lori Willey gave a written statement to police that she'd seen Fournier running down the street near the high school and he was carrying a bottle around 9 p.m. There was another guy she didn't know running behind him. She remembered it clearly because she knew him and the next day heard about the accident with the oil truck and wondered if one had something to do with the other. Hmm. After she gave that written statement in 1983, and there's nothing in the affidavit that says why she gave it, no one interviewed her further about it until December 2013. Jesus Her husband, Arthur Willie, who knew Fournier through his uncle, was in the car with Lori and also wrote a similar statement for police in 1983, saying he'd seen Fournier running from behind the high school. No one followed up on his written statement either until December 2013. Once Fournier gave that 1981 confession, you'd think they would have doubled down and gone back and found out if he was at the high school or not and what he had done that night, but they didn't. In 2009... Fournier was arrested and sentenced to six years in prison for possessing child pornography. Uh. Some 635 images were Uh. found on his computer, as well as videos of men, quote, having sex with infants and toddlers, Uh. according to the U.S. Attorney's Office, as reported by the BDN. And I'd actually call that raping infants and toddlers, Uh. not having sex with them. Yes. According sure. to the Bangor Daily News in that 2009 story, Fournier was the subject of a 2001 investigation by the Maine Department of Health and Human Services after his six-year-old daughter alleged that he touched her inappropriately. Judge John Woodcock said at Fournier's 2009 sentencing that the charges had been dropped, but it was likely that Fournier had abused the girl. Mm. Fournier said at that trial that he had a sexual interest in girls between the ages of 10 and 12. Mm. Quote, I'm severely sorry for the pain these children have gone through, he told the judge. In the past year, I've become aware of how devastating child sex abuse is to children and society as a whole. Gee, through counseling really? and the support of my family, I've become aware of why I began seeking it out. I don't think I'll be a threat to society. The Bangor Daily News story says that Fournier came to the attention of officers with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement three years before when he used his credit card to buy access to a website known to contain child pornography. And the reason that would come under um, ICE is because these are like global networks that span Uh countries. They seized this computer in November 2006 he was finally indicted in January 2009. At the sentencing, Judge Woodcock made it a point to mention that Fournier was a person of interest in the McLean case. He wasn't asked to do this by law enforcement, but he told attorneys on both sides before the sentencing that he was going to do it because the case had caused so much pain to the Katahdin region. Woodcock said to Fournier in court, If you know anything about that case, I urge you to think long and hard about telling the police. That case has hung like a dark cloud over that community and been very painful for many people. If you can help people in that community remove that cloud, I would urge you to do that. I don't know what you know, but there are many people in that community and in this state who deserve to have answers. Fournier and his attorneys didn't react. And I'm thinking, Fournier was thinking, man, I talked to those assholes 27 times. What more do you want from me? (laughs) Afterwards, his attorney, Virginia Villa, told the Bangor Daily News, my client has done everything that was within his power to assist the authorities at the McLean investigation. Joyce's mother, Pam McLean, told the Bangor Daily News after that, I have just always heard his name, so this is not a surprise to me that it was mentioned in court. He is one of the top names, I would say, of interest. There have been at least six of them that are the most talked about suspects loudly through the years. He is in that group. She also said she wished the state police would clear up the case, if nothing else, to clear the names of the guys who didn't do it. These people need some closure too, she said. They are not suspects, did not kill her, and know they did not kill her. Imagine the hell they are going through. I think it's a shame. I think they, the investigators, ought to weed them out and let them have some kind of a life for how many years they have left. wife, Starla Markey, was also interviewed by the Bangor Daily News after Woodcock's statements in court. She said she knew that Fournier was a person of interest in the the McLean case. The article said she spoke guardedly of Fournier and hadn't talked to him for five years, but said she wasn't surprised he was convicted on child pornography charges. They met in 1997 when she was 20 and he was 34 and they were on a softball team together. They were divorced by 1999. Quote, when you first meet him, he's a really nice guy, Marky said. A little quiet. He likes to stay to himself. If he knows you need help with something, he will help you out. The relationship deepened when an ex boyfriend began stalking her, Marky said. Hmm. He took me and my son in. He offered his place up for us, helped support us for the first six months. He was amazing. He encouraged my family ties. I actually got him to talk about his family, with whom he was estranged. Marky said Fournier's possible connection to the McLean case became apparent when a rerun of the 1989 Unsolved Mysteries came on one night when they were watching TV. He had become frustrated, saying that he tried to offer help, tried to offer to the show's producers what he knew, and what they put in the episode differed from what he had told them, she said. And by the way, that Unsolved Mysteries episode doesn't mention Fournier at all. Hmm. You know, it's one of those ones that has like five things in it, and um, so it's like about 10 minutes, but it doesn't mention him. But that was 1989. So Pam McLean told the Bangor Daily News, I can't remember Scott Fournier being anywhere around when Unsolved Mysteries was here. Mm -hmm. Markey said about the McLean murder that Fournier told her, he told me he could not remember a lot. From what he told me, he answered the police honestly with every answer he put forth. And it's weird, the Bangor Daily News' headline on that was something like, Fournier's ex-wife says he implicated himself in the McLean murder. And the story says nothing of the kind, so it was kind of weird weird. weird. that it had that headline. By the way, the Bangor Daily News also reported that Fournier had been getting Social Security disability payments since the mid-1980s, except for a short period between 2004 and 2006 because of his injury in the truck accident. In 2010... This is according to an affidavit. Brian Strout, the investigator, found out that a couple of years after the murder, Fournier had told somebody he was an AA with that he did the murder with a gang of other guys.
2: Mm.
1: He said that Joyce was running behind the high school and a gang of guys grabbed her and dragged her to the power lines, where she was hit on the head with a whiskey bottle, and he was forced by the other guys to rape her. He said later that night he panicked and stole an oil truck and wrecked it. After that... The guy's wife told Strout, Fournier went to their house in Bangor every day to talk about Joyce's murder. He said that Joyce resisted and fought the attack, and that's why she got killed. Now, it's not clear if this couple ever told police about it at the time. This was just a few years after the murder or how Strout found out about it in 2010. It's possible their names were in some report and he, you know, followed up and reached out. Mm -hmm. In 2011, Pam McLean asked the FBI to step in. She told the Bangor Daily News it had been more than two years since the exhumation and she'd heard nothing from the police. Quote, I question that. Why? Big W-H-Y. What is happening? I said I would wait two years and I would shut my mouth, but now I would like to have the FBI take it because I have lost a lot of faith in the Maine State Police Department. I worry that they are not equipped to handle it. I am really worried about that. I really am. And not just for mine, for all the other cases in the state that are lying dormant, unsolved. The FBI would take the case if the U.S. Attorney's Office saw it as a violation of federal law, FBI Special Agent Cal Marcinowitz told the Bangor Daily News, murder is not something that we usually have federal jurisdiction over, she said. The Bangor Daily News wrote in that 2011 story, Pamela McLean's latest comments fit a pattern of tension in Amity. She and the... Investigators have developed over the last decade. McLean lets months or years pass before complaining publicly about a lack of communication regarding or progress with the investigation. State police make public statements of sympathy and privately brief her as best they can, they have said, without violating Hmm. case confidentiality. Less frequently, McLean announces a private initiative to bolster the case. Graylin Hale, Joyce's cousin and an apparent spokesperson for her cause, told the BDN that in 2008, a state police detective visited the Vidoc Society a Philadelphia-based organization of retired investigators that offers free advice on unsolved cases. A society representative told Hale that the society had offered state police some helpful advice, but it hadn't seemed to result in anything. In August 2012, on the 32nd anniversary of Joyce's murder, the FBI announced it would not take on the case. Fournier was released from prison on the child porn charges in January 2015. Mm. Also around then, there was a turnover in the state attorney general's office. While well, Janet Mills, who's now Maine's governor, was AG from 2013 to 2019, the deputy AG in charge of the criminal division changed from Bill Stokes to Lisa Marchese. Mm. That may have been what prompted a new look at pursuing charges. Fournier was finally arrested March 4, 2016. It's never been clear what prompted it. At the time, state police spokesman Steve McCauslin said Hmm. it just showed that a good murder investigation takes some time to complete. Okay, Steve. Quote, A murder arrest is not contingent upon one single piece of evidence, but on the entirety of an investigation, which can span years and include hundreds of interviews, he said. You get one shot at a murder case, and you have to make it the best possible, and the Attorney General's office determined this week that this was the time. And as far as getting one shot at a case, I know Bill Stokes, that was a theme of his. That's one reason, for instance, the Ayla Reynolds episode three case has never seen charges because he doesn't want to bring a case and have somebody get acquitted. So that it very well may be why charges were never brought when he was in charge of the criminal division. But he wasn't in charge of it from 1980. You know, he was only there for a few years. Anyway, Fournier was indicted by a Penobscot County grand jury on March 23, 2016. The Bangor Daily News talked to people in East Millinocket who said they knew he was on the list of suspects and it was common knowledge around town that he had, quote, confessed to police several times over the decades, unquote. But everyone assumed he was just confessing because of his brain injury and that he didn't really do it. Fournier's attorney, Jeffrey Silverstein, questioned the evidence against him. Quote, the main focus that the state is relying upon are statements that he allegedly made back in the 1980s. There doesn't seem to be any significant new information presented, certainly in Mr. Fournier statements. I'm a bit concerned about why he was charged in March of 2016 when by all appearances the last time he talked to them was about a year ago. The main thrust of what they are relying upon comes from the 1980s. Yeah. The People magazine show makes it seem like a call from John DeRoche, a janitor at Bangor High School, is what prompted the arrest. It didn't. DeRoche called police after he saw on TV in 2016 that Fournier was arrested. In 1989, he was Fournier's supervisor at Husson College in Bangor, where both were janitors. When Taroche found out Fournier was from East Millinocket, he asked if he knew about the Joyce McLean murder. Fournier said, I killed her, I know all about it. Taroche asked him how he did it, and Fournier said, I hit her with a glass insulator on the back of the head. DeRoche asked him why he hadn't been arrested, and Fournier said, I beat the interviews about 20 times. Every time they ask me, I tell them it's my head, and I can't remember, and they buy it. DeRoche told someone in security at Husson that there was a suspect in the McLean murder working at the school, but it's not clear what he told them. Did he tell them Fournier actually said he did it or not? That's not clear. Mm. They apparently never told Maine State Police, though maybe they did, and the way the case was going, no one gave a shit. This was 1989, Mm. and that could have been when Joe Zamboni, who was so sold on the Joe Albert theory, talked to Vinyl Thomas. And Vinyl Thomas told him the story about Scott confessing in 1981, and Zamboni apparently discounted it. Fournier had one interview with the state police in 1989, so that could have stemmed it. But in any case, Zania says on The People Show that DeRoche's information is significant because now Fournier is saying that he remembers what he said in 1981, And since then, he's been able to deflect attention from himself. And I'm like, gee, too bad they they couldn't have figured that out for themselves. She makes it sound, and obviously nobody who's on one of those shows knows how it's going to be edited. People makes it sound like that's why he was arrested, but yet he called the cops after... The arrest was made, so. The affidavit for the arrest was written by Detective Thomas Pickering of the State Police, who was not an investigator on the case. And he wrote the affidavit after reviewing all the reports in the case, which supports the theory that the new Criminal Defense Division Deputy AG, Lisa Mark Chasey, was looking at the evidence differently from how Bill Stokes had looked at it. Fournier's attorney, Jeff Silverstein, said it was unusual to read an affidavit that did not include forensic evidence that tied the victim to the defendant. He also described Fournier as 100% disabled since he had oh. suffered his head injury. Deputy AG Lisa Marchese said, though, that there was enough probable cause for a judge to sign a warrant for Fournier's arrest. Marchese said it's my belief that it was really the culmination of many years of hard work and investigation Mm -hmm. coupled with looking closely at his statements eliminating some of the alternative suspects that he put forth and really analyzing and interviewing further people and concluding that his statements were to be believed and that we could prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt which is a lot of bullshit saying you know we finally got our heads out of our butts. No shit. She said that over the past couple of years, quote, further testing, unquote, had been done, but didn't disclose what kind of testing and what the results might be. Now, several years after that, after reading the affidavits and all the trial stories, it's not clear to me what the hell she was talking about.
2: Mm.
1: Fournier pleaded not guilty at his arraignment in June 2016. The atmosphere at the hearing was tense. The families of both he and McLean were stuffed in the courtroom. They all knew each other. And then there was a delay with the hearing getting started, so they were all sitting there for an hour. The tension was briefly alleviated, the Bangor Daily News reported, when Graylin Hale, Joyce's cousin, and Pam's nephew, shook hands with Wayne Powers, Fournier's stepfather, and with Lauren Kimball, Fournier's brother-in-law. Quote, I told Lauren his family are good people, and no matter what the outcome is, that won't change. Mr. Hmm. Powers put his hand out and I shook it. These family members are not the bad people. At a bail and probable cause hearing in the Penobscot Judicial Center in July 2016, Judge Ann Murray... (laughs) I won't start singing like snowbirds or something. I know. ...called the case against Fournier solid but not overwhelming. Fournier opted for a bench trial and it began in January 2018 and lasted 10 days. His lawyer said he'd rejected Hmm. a plea deal, the details of which weren't made public. At the trial, another of Fournier's attorneys, John Haddow, cited the lack of forensic evidence and said the state's charge, quote, is not based on science, but on subjectivity, which is not a recipe to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, unquote. The defense overall can generally be classified as head injury, head injury, head injury, and also what about all those other guys who could have done it? Mm -hmm. The state argued that Fournier knew things only someone who killed Joyce could know. Murray found Fournier guilty, on February 22, 2018. Murray rejected the head injury argument, saying that Fournier was able to recall other events with great clarity. She also pointed out he knew closely shielded details of the crime that left no doubt about his involvement. Thank you, Anne. I know. Quote, His recitation that Joyce had an injury to the left side of her face, yet the left side of her face was not visible when she was found, and Mr. Fournier's attempt to kill himself in the oil truck within hours of Joyce McLean's death causes the court to find that the state has proven the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, Murray said. And actually, her statement was quite long, it's somewhere in full online. I saw it, but um, this was already getting so long, I didn't read the whole thing. So anyway, he was sentenced to 45 years in the main state prison. Hmm. His attorney Silverstein said, it seems as if the judge's mind was certainly made up and convinced oh, whether, whether that was the case. Her decision today finding him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt stands in stark contrast to 35 years worth of police who diligently worked this case. So I guess Silverstein is using the ham-handed and incompetent investigation... As evidence of innocence, I, I don't follow his reasoning. Okay. In fact, I think it was probably a mistake to do a bench trial. They probably figured emotions had run so high, you know, that a judge would have to follow the law, you know. But the I, thing
0: is, a jury might have bought his head jury thinking right. the judge is too smart to do that. That's
1: what I was thinking. Pam McLean said, it took 37 and a half years and you'll never see a happier mother than this one is okay, right Pam. here, right now. How do we feel? We're here and this is the end. Speaking to Joyce, she said, we made it, girl, we made it, we done this together. She said she didn't blame Fournier's family. Quote, I feel very bad for his family, his siblings and grandparents, his aunts and uncles. I feel very badly for all of them and will visit if they will have me there. I don't hate Scott. I don't hate them. It's over. One interesting thing, it seems like from the affidavits, his buddy, Leroy Spearin must have known something about what Uh happened that night. But he's not mentioned in any affidavit and only tangentially in stories. It's not clear if police ever talked to him, interviewed him. It seems like he'd be one guy who could implicate Scott Fournier. It's very weird.
0: If that story is true about him. The two guys who saw a lot of
1: people, a lot of people saw them together that night. Anise Milenakis. Well, pops- how, uh, yeah,
0: but how he was acting, like, muttering and stuff. Right, and right. And a sheet. But yeah. in any
1: case, he was seen by several people with fournier at the time the murder would have been committed so even if he wasn't part of it 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 seems like there'd be something for him to tell but he never ever 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 comes up fournier appealed his conviction his Hmm. appellate lawyer rory mcnamara argued that the court erred when it didn't allow an alternative suspect defense as well when it didn't explore why fournier wasn't arrested 37 years ago Hmm. when he first made incriminating statements argued that Fournier never waived his religious privilege to keep his conversation with his pastor, yeah. Vinyl Thomas, private, and that should have been excluded from the trial, and it said the court aired in putting Fournier at the party near the time of the murder. Some people said he was at that big party and some people didn't and I'm not sure why that was a court error, but anyway, the state countered that the court didn't make those errors, that Fournier was interviewed by police 22 times, and it was actually 27, and was charged only after investigators turned up new evidence and a new witness who said Fournier admitted to having killed McLean and eluding arrest and responsibility during the investigation, although again, Deroche didn't call police until after the arrest. So that's not why they arrested him, but I think he did call them before the indictment. If you're wondering about the religious confession thing, by the way, the court decision cites main law that if someone confesses to the same things to others that they confess to their religious person, as Fournier did with his parents and many other people, then the religious privilege no longer holds. The uh, alternative suspect, I won't get into the whole legal back and forth, but apparently by main law, you have to... If you wanna use alternative suspects you have to you don't have to tie somebody else directly to the crime, but you do have to give evidence that the person could have done it. Whereas Fournier's attorneys kinda of wanted to just generally do a more general thing, which isn't allowed. So
0: I think that came up in another one we've done too. Yeah, I had
1: the legal notes on it, but I didn't want to get into the whole thing. Yeah. In any case, the Supreme Court rejected the appeal in February 2019. One good thing to come out of all this was, as annoying as Pam McClain may have been to police Mm. for all those years, someone else important was listening. In 2015, her efforts helped prompt the state legislature to pass the law that created the main state police cold case unit. It wasn't up and running yet when Fournier was arrested, but it has solved some other crimes. In a sad note, Peter Larley that original suspect who'd found Joyce's body, died of a heart attack on March 2nd, 2016, the day before the arrest affidavit for Fournier Uh was signed by a judge. Larley had been a fire captain in East Millinocket for 16 years and was on the job and had just returned from an emergency call and was sitting in his truck when he had the heart attack. Mm. He was 57. He was described as a caring and capable leader who worked hard to keep crews safe. He was known, they said, for praising others publicly and admonishing them if needed, only privately. He also was remembered for having a good sense of humor and a warm personality. The outpouring of condolences has been gratifying and humbling for the Larley family. His daughter, Robin Larley, told the Bangor Daily News, quote, what he embodied was to always be kind, love longer, give a helping hand, have a listening ear, and just be a friend. He will truly be missed every day, but his memory will live on always, she said. Aww. And I wanted to point this out because the People Show depicts him as a creepy guy who, even though Fournier was in prison when that was made, it still had gratuitous questioning about him. They made him look like Boo Radley or something. Yeah. And they even have Pam saying things. And again, from other things she said that I've read in many stories of her concerns for the people who were falsely accused, yeah. I can't believe she would have wanted Peter Larley depicted the way the people show depicted him in using her quotes like even when she said you know he was sitting on the steps a week later and it was just weird like why go into all that i kind of blame the show back to joyce strout the cold case investigator said he doesn't think fournier intended to kill joyce but it was the tragic result of bad decisions and that quote evil took over Oh, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, know what I think Scott's intention to rape Joyce was clear that night, and that's more than just a bad decision, yeah, the rape itself was tragic, then he had to kill her as long as cops and others see that as quote evil taking over unquote rather than the fact that stalking and raping a woman or girl should be looked at as an incredibly serious behavior that there are many red flags for it's going to keep happening as long as these cases keep being investigated from inside the investigators assholes instead of (laughs) because it just looks from all the research I did on this they were led around by their noses by Fournier Samboni for many many years had his one half-assed fixation on joe albert and my guess is you know the whole thing clothes stuffed in the stone wall albert killing justina gridley was three years after joyce mcclain the joyce mcclain murder got a shitload of publicity since this is a guy who rapes and murders women he was probably interested in it and he may have done that to try to deflect attention to make it look like it was part of a serial murder or something so maybe it wasn't that weird but joe zamboni knew about fournier's confession it doesn't seem like anybody in 1981 or joe zamboni in 1989 went and interviewed people who saw fournier that night a fucking cop saw fournier that night things that would have backed it up head injury or no head injury would have backed up that confession the fact that he knew shit from the beginning that nobody else knew and they just ignored that so don't give me that the cops the whole covering their ass the prosecution and the cops making it look like you know this whole oh it was hard 30 years of hard work and blah blah blah." don't give me that shit as long as they circle their wagons and don't push harder for more For better investigations of stuff like this. And maybe there needs to be some kind of training or something. You know, that whole one of somebody in our town couldn't have done it when almost all these cases, like that Rita St. Peter case I mentioned earlier tonight, almost all these cases, it's local people doing it. It's not some traveling troubadour of a serial killer doing it, it's some kid in your town doing it. And it's just, ugh. But anyway, when the Supreme Court rejected Fournier's final appeal, Pam McLean told the Bangor Daily News that she was going to finally be able to grieve. I will continue with the parents who are like myself, but it has been 38 years, and with it solved after 38 years, I never had time to go through a grieving process like a normal mother with the loss of a deceased child. Mine was murdered. So needless to say, through this past year, I have gone through a grieving process. I don't know how long that will take. Uh-huh. And that is the story of Joyce McLean. Thank you. I didn't know about this case, but I conflated her with a lot of young women who were killed around that time and whose yes. cases are cold. And you just have to wonder if the investigations weren't so half-assed.
0: Well, her case would probably still be cold if... Her mother didn't. Because yes. Because from the beginning, they obviously didn't
1: have any desire, it seems, to really they had. I think they had, a, think they had a desire to pursue it, but it confounds me that they didn't do what I would think would be obvious was the, you know, they said they interviewed hundreds of people in that first week. How can you interview hundreds of people? I don't get how they interviewed hundreds of people, but what they should have done is interviewed the people who were on that field. That soccer field. I know. And not like, did you see Peter Larley? Was Peter Larley here? But who did you see? How did they act? Did anyone act out of the ordinary? Who did you talk to? Like, I I know I've said this a dozen times, but when they had Fournier's Confession... Less than a year later, they should have gone back and asked people because there were a shitload of people who saw him acting weird that night. You know, they'll they'll hypnotize people, they'll go to psychics. It's It just seems so, I don't know, like they try all these other things, but <laughs> they didn't seem to do that. And then the fact that his confession was just like totally discounted. Well, he's got a brain injury and maybe they should have brought in some expert who could have told them that Fournier's pattern was not of somebody recovering his memory. I know. Because if they had just looked at the interview notes from when he was interviewed six weeks after the murder, when he remembered by the hour what he had done and who he had talked to and where he had gone, and then like his memory got worse, it didn't get better.
0: Even if they didn't have what he told them. Just like you were saying, if they started with the premise, okay, we don't know who the person is, we don't know what happened, so let's talk to everybody, see who was there, blah, blah, blah. Look for other stuff.
1: Right, and I and know? I had the impression, too, that they wasted a lot of time the first week talking to softball tournament people and mill construction worker people who really wouldn't have been there. I mean, I know the softball tournament lasted until dusk, But, you know, you start at the inside and work out. So it seems to me you're going to talk. It it wasn't like she had just gone and nobody knew. She went to Bangor to go shopping and nobody knew where she was or when she was going to come back. She wasn't going to be out running all night. I know. She ran for a specific amount of time in a specific place. So obviously whatever happened to her happened you know, around between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. You talk to the people at Skank High School that night. Sounds
0: like there were a lot of people hanging around, I know.
1: And also, it's just disheartening to see how it can be depicted. If I can find out all this, TV shows and newspaper reporters. You know, sometimes you read those Bangor Daily News stories, and it's like they didn't read their story from the week before or something. You know, know. like the one where he interviewed Fournier's ex-wife in 2009. It said it wasn't clear why they stopped talking in 2001. Well, the friggin' story the day before, two days before, with Judge Woodcock was like, yeah, in 2001, his six-year-old daughter... You know, alleged he molested her. Gee, there's a reason for the wife Ugh, to stop talking to him. But anyway, shit. thank
0: you complain. very much.
1: Now, you have a recommendation, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, so my
0: NNW is on a TV show. Ooh! It's on Netflix. It's called Bob Ross Happy Accident Betrayal and Greed. Ooh! I had read about it somewhere and I thought, oh, that might be interesting. And then I didn't think much about it. And then today I was looking for something to watch and uh, I saw it and it's only like an hour and a half. So I'm like, oh, sure. Try this out. And is this the
1: Bob Ross of the Happy Little Trees? Yes, it
0: is. It's the Bob Ross, the artist. I'll go through it and then I'll talk about it. Yeah.
1: Bad reenactments. Uh, No, there
0: aren't really any reenactments, but there are times when they're talking about stuff that happened there's no narrator it's just people being interviewed which i liked but when it'll be somebody talking it's usually bob ross's son who's about my age i think they had these illustrations are kind of like watercolors of just like like he was telling a story about somebody you know sitting in the dark smoking a cigarette and they showed you know, a picture of a shadowy woman, you know, sitting right. so stuff like that. So, so I'm not going to take any points away, it didn't really bother me. I didn't know how necessary they were, but they weren't, they weren't obtrusive or anything, and they were nice, like, interesting watercolor illustrations. So, no points taken off for, uh, for that. Um, narrative cliches, I'm taking half a point off, I'm just getting a little <sighs> tired of the b-roll of the people like straightening their clothes and oh yeah yeah the, of the people they interview i know
1: that like this, showing them sitting down in the chair before the interview yeah, and, and i yeah. think in some ways it does
0: give you a little insight on the person when they're in an unguarded moment but it's still just kind of like
1: okay whatever yeah, it's become a cliche definitely yeah, it's
0: a cliche so half a point off for that racial gender obtusis no i mean everyone in it that I can think of is white, but it's a documentary and it's about a specific thing. So there's, you know, it's not like they can do much about it. There really isn't anything obtuse about any race or gender.
1: One thing I'm looking for now in documentaries is their choice of talking heads. Are there talking heads all white men?
0: There are only two talking heads. That's true. One's a white, a youngish white man, and one is a woman who's probably in her late 40s they're both art professors so yeah maybe they could have gotten somebody for that different but i still i it's not enough right. for me to take a point off lack of good visuals zero that had very good visuals because he was a tv personality obviously there's a lot of tape of him through the years and there are a lot of photographs most of which are not repeated I'm not going to take any points off for that. Um, Missing pieces, I'm taking a point off. So what the main thing about the story is, is Bob Ross, when he started out, he was kind of a teacher. There was another guy with a um, show called The Magic of Painting that did a similar process to Bob's. But his personality and everything was different. I would have liked to have... Seen what he, I mean, he's probably dead now, but they didn't talk about whether he was okay with Bob doing the show, like, because what happened was Bob was in the service and he uh, was kind of tired of that and he wanted to retire. He really loved to paint. And he took a class of this guy. This guy had a TV show, like I said, similar to Bob's, where he painted. Uh, and he did the similar type of painting very quick. And they do do a good job of this art professor. The woman explains what the process is, how they paint. The process of keeping the paint wet and everything and working on a wet canvas and stuff. She explains how they're able to do the painting really fast that way. And I thought that was helpful. But anyways, he took... Lessons from this guy, and then he became an instructor because they would go around the country and have little workshops where they would instruct people on how to paint, and that way they would sell the paintbrushes and paints and all that stuff. So Bob became one of his instructors, and then he decided that he was gonna have a show and they explain his background and all that stuff so that's great but was this guy upset that bob was gonna have a tv show they never talk about whether that guy was annoyed by it or not because basically he's gonna become his competition i would think so they don't explain that i, I was wondering about that so i'm taking a point off for that and the other point i'm taking off is bob's business partners the whole betrayal and greed thing was about them it was this couple i think their name was kowalski you think i take better notes. But anyways, Mm. they would not cooperate with the documentary makers. One of the people in the documentary says, you know, you're not going to get many people to cooperate because the Kowalskis will sue them. And then the documentarian, they had a note that said over a dozen people that were going to take part wouldn't because they're afraid of a lawsuit. So that's fine. But I would have liked more. There are ways to get more information about people without having to have they could have done a little more about them and their kind of their side of the story or if you will yeah whatever you know what i mean right Uh, um so i'm taking a point off for missing pieces if
1: there was court action they
0: could have found court. they had
1: some yeah I mean, there was, like
0: I'm saying, they could have had more stuff on. I would have liked to have heard more about them, put it that way. Even though I know it's about Bob, but it's about the betrayal and greed, too. So inaccuracies, anachronisms, no. They have a lot of good archival footage and stuff. I think you get a really good sense of who Bob Ross was. Uh, Storytelling, I'm taking half a point off. I wanted to have more of a timeline of when things happened and what the year was. They did mention years a lot. But not enough. I don't know. I just wanted more. So I'm taking a half a point off. Freshness, I'm not taking anything off. I didn't know a lot about him. I enjoyed watching it. I, in fact, mm. I watched it twice. Or the, I watched the first half again because I was getting interrupted mm. quite a bit when I was watching it. Even though I was in my room, clearly watching something, somebody felt the need to keep asking me questions and stuff. Dad?
1: No. Hannah? Hannah? Mm- No. Mom? Yes.
0: Repetition? No. I'm not taking anything off. There wasn't really any repetition. They showed some pictures more than once, but that wasn't a problem. Beating the drum, I am taking half a point off. Ooh. Because, obviously, he was ripped off. What happened was the couple that were his business partners, when he died, he was young when he died. He was only 52. He died of cancer, and he knew he was dying, and he tried to make it so his son and his brother would be able to use his image and his persona to make a profit instead of the Kowalskis or whatever their names were, and his brother, Jimmy, signed that away without the son's knowledge. And the son did sue when he found out, but he lost. So Uh. it's about Bob Ross's, his personality was what made the show. And these people are using it to profit. So, Mm. and that was shitty, but they kind of beat the drum a little bit too much on that, I guess. I don't know. I do recommend giving it a seven and a half. I would have liked to see more. I want, I kind of wanted to see more about Bob Ross and, more about these people. He apparently was a very nice person and he really did want just to bring his persona on TV. I know a lot of people make fun of it. It's easy to make fun of him because he's an optimistic, happy person and he kind of philosophizes a little when he's painting. And I think some people saw it as like he's putting on something. But he really was like that. He enjoyed making paintings. And he wanted other people to enjoy it too. And he thought everybody could paint if they wanted to. Hmm. He just seemed like a very nice person. It's too bad that other people are profiting off who yeah. he was I was thinking about it and I thought you know it's funny there are these places now like these paint bars where yes. people go and drink wine and paint
1: yes yes you know, for people who we are had to artists. do that once at work for our Christmas party <laughs> for people who are for people who are artists we all had to paint the same painting yes you all paint the same painting. sucked it
2: was no Which fun
0: is, which is what his classes were, too. But, yeah, but it's just kind of like the same type of idea that he had. Right. Some people really enjoy it. They're, they don't think that they can paint anything, so they come away with a painting. I don't necessarily I agree. came away with
1: a really bad painting. <laughs>
0: with it. He came off very well in the documentary, and he seemed like a very nice... And his son seems like a very nice guy. Well, I'll
1: have to watch and, that.
0: Yeah, it's a very quick watch, and I think that most people would enjoy it. But I just wish I... I guess I just wish I knew more. So. Yeah. Yeah, my oh. well, thank you. I no, that's a good that's a good review. And, and next time I get to do my story,
1: right? And we'll have another exciting episode. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you say so, I hope I do so.
1: I do I'm okay. I'm shooting for that. Okay. okay good.
0: All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Okay. So one of those weird coincidences happen again the other day so i was driving i was crossing the bridge in south portland not that that's relevant to anything oh it's good to have
1: a setting i was
0: listening to a podcast about that stupid cabinet of curiosities podcast which even though it annoys me i can't stop listening to Mm. it but right when he he was talking about picasso and just in passing it was at the moment he was talking about picasso a car next to me pulled ahead, and they had a little sticker on the back of their car that had the Don Quixote, the Picasso Don Quixote thing.
1: That's, you know, a little That figure. is quite a Isn't coincidence. Isn't that
0: weird? Why does stuff like that happen?